good to have a rabbi up here as our worship, other worship leaders, other worship leaders, not worship leaders, the other worship leaders. And here's Matt Davis. He works with children, he works with marriages, he works with families, uh, VBS, and he leads in worship as well. He's just the all-around talented, leading a wonderful group of people up here as well. Yeah, it's great to be with you. You're, you're fortunate you came this hour. First hour, the air conditioning was marginally working. And so there was a lot of fanning going on as I was standing up here. And I don't think they were waiting for me to get off the platform. I think they're actually going to stay cool. And actually, in Mali, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and it is 110 degrees every single day, and it's 100 degrees at midnight. And so pray for the people in Phoenix. They live with us every single day. I don't know how I did it. And so it's going to be back with you. If you don't realize who I am, I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, I was senior pastor here for 22 years and stepped down uh, a few months ago now, about four or five months ago it is, work with the elders, kind of a time of transition, succession planning. Eric Wakeling is now the new senior pastor who is here, and Eric has kindly allowed me to stay here. He's trusting me to be up here right now to say things. I could say things about Eric if I wanted to, but he's trusting me, and so I appreciate the opportunity to continue to serve here. Calvary is our home. For joy and for me, this is our home, and uh, we love it here. We love you guys, and we appreciate the opportunity to still be involved in ministry and uh, can't even think about and fathom the idea of retirement. As part of the uh, help in the transition time, the elders and the church really in, at large gave us a three-month sabbatical. So that's why Matt was saying, welcome back. You probably thought, you just missed my memorial service and I was gone. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, we've been away on a sabbatical for three months and a variety of things that I could spend a lot of time talking to you about. But I know you didn't come to hear about that. You came to hear the Word of God so I invite you to take your Bibles in hand as we look at the Word of God and allow His Word to lead us, to teach us, to grow us. And there's an outline that's in the bulletin there that's just exactly like the one I have in my hand. I'm going to reference that at the end of the message here. So I encourage you to have that handy. It's a good thing to follow along. You have a sense, uh, a little more proportion of those things that God has said. We are in the book of Mark. We're learning who Jesus is. This is an amazing story and account of Christ. It's a short one. It's sort of the micro picture of one specific incident. But the reason that God includes stories in the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, is to give us a micro picture of a small setting that we can then therefore learn from for our settings, our situations, and the bigger work that God is trying to do. So keep that in mind as I read from this text. I'm in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. And I'm going to read to 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And when he says immediately, that means referencing immediately after the feeding of thousands of people with a fish in the loaves. A major miracle in the Bible. So they've seen this amazing thing where Jesus has fulfilled <coughs> all that. Donor, would you mind handing me the water? I feel like I'm on the precipice of a... <clears throat> Thank you. The hot, hot weather. Anybody? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, donor. <clears throat> Let me back up. <clears throat> Verse 45. Sorry. You know, it's been three months since I've talked. And so... <clears throat> Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, 
while he was himself was sending the crowd away. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows that immediately had preceded this event, but their heart was hardened. There's a lot there that God wants us to learn from. On our sabbatical, <clears throat> I had four words that I sort of kept in my mind as to the sort of the purpose and the things that I would like to see God do. And they all start with R. Four, the four R's of our sabbatical are, were, are, rest, renewal, relationships, and restoration. <clears throat> and the variety of things that Joy and I did in the course of that time were, were all aspects of that. One aspect of the renewal was me taking a motorcycle trip up to Utah, Colorado, to see my niece, who lives in Pine, Colorado, which is about, like, ten people, and, uh, and then visited her and her kids and her family. My sister was there, and was her, her daughter, my sister's daughter, and then back around through Pueblo and then through uh, the Grand Canyon area and to uh, back home. It's like a 2,400-mile trip. So here I am in Colorado, beautiful mountains of Colorado, just a great place to ride a motorcycle. And the snow is still on the mountains that are up there. It was cold. And so I'm in St. George, Utah, Comfort Inn. Always stay at the Comfort Inn. Free breakfast, scrambled eggs, waffle. And so I stayed in this Comfort Inn in St. George, and I had a uh, reservation for the Comfort Inn in Eagle, Colorado. Eagle is right next to Rifle, Colorado, if you're trying to figure out where that is. And so it's a pretty long day. You go on up the 15 and you go over in the 70 uh, in Colorado and uh, you go through Grand Junction. And before I left that day, one of the things you're, if you're on a motorcycle on a long trip like that, you are interested in what the weather is doing. So I looked up the weather channel, the weather app on my phone, and it said sunny. Sunny all the way. So that's great. You love to have sunny days in Colorado when there's snow in the mountains still and it can be a little cold. So as I rode, I came to about 40 minutes outside of Eagle, Colorado, which is about 6,600 feet high. And as I approached Eagle, Colorado, this is what the sky looked like. There was a storm. I mean, it didn't even look as good as that. I mean, it was literally a black line across the horizon of dark clouds. So for 40 minutes, I rode through a driving wind rainstorm. And you haven't lived until you've ridden a motorcycle with an open face and the raindrops, as you go 60 miles per hour, hit you on your cheeks. It's invigorating. <laughs> it feels like somebody's sticking you with pins constantly. And so for 40 minutes, I finally arrive in Eagle, and I'm soaking wet. 
cars going by me at 70 as I'm going 60 just to kind of get out of their way and their spray comes over all, all over me and it's just a mess. Why do I tell you that story? Two reasons. Right now, number reason number one is that it's now a business expense because I'm using it as part of the message. <laughs> so I'm going to write off this whole trip as a business expense on my taxes next year. But more importantly than that, Sorry, Paul Ninow, I hope that's okay. Um, but more importantly than that, is that God sometimes wakes us up in the morning and says, I think days, today's going to be a good day. The weather forecast, if you will, in a proverbial way, metaphorically speaking, is sunny. But then as we go through the day, we go through the week, we go through the month, or we go through this year, suddenly the storm clouds. I said, wait, wait, I, I thought this was going to be all sunny and it was going to be a great day and everything's going to go fine and, and now there's storms, there's winds, there's people coming by me, splashing me with their residue, there's situations and circumstances that suddenly are so harsh, conditions that are just impossible and I'm beginning to think to myself, Lord, wh where are you? Why are you allowing this? And today's story of Jesus and his disciples. And these are men who are dedicated followers of his. These aren't sinners. These aren't people who are rebelling. They are his followers. And he's going to place them into a boat where they strain to make any progress. And sometimes God puts us into a proverbial boat where we strain to do what we want to do. And we don't like it. We just don't like it. So as we go through this particular passage, that's the thrust. It's the testing of our faith. And there's four things I want us to learn from this passage. There's much more. But the first thing that I observe from this passage is this. That Jesus will put us into situations that tests our faith. That causes great disappointments. There will be those of us who will have a diagnosis of cancer. And we resent it. There will be those of us who thought we had a very good marriage only to discover that a spouse is unfaithful. There are those of us who would love to have children, but we are going through the, the pain of infertility. There are those of us who spent our lives rearing our children to be dedicated followers of Jesus, and now they've turned their back on everything we believe. There are those of us who are hoping to get into that school of our first choice and we were turned down. There were those of us who were hoping for the promotion, but we were passed over by someone else that we don't even think is as good as that we are. And the list could go on and on and on. And that God puts us in those situations. And I want to make sense of it. Notice this passage, that Jesus puts us in those things Starting in Mark chapter 6 again, immediately after there's a major miracle, and that's key, a major miracle has occurred, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side of the Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. A little bit later on, seeing them, he's watching this thing play out, straining at the oars 
for the wind was against them. He's up in the mountain praying. He's watching the guys in the boat, not going anywhere. That's the key. Two words give a revealing insight into God's work. Number one is made. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. They would probably say, no, Jesus, you come with us. No, we'll stay with you. He says, no, I want you in the boat. Get in the boat. I'm not going with you. Now go. Because the word made actually is a Greek word that means to constrain, whether by threat, entreaty, force, or persuasion. That's the power of that word. Jesus, I'm going to force you into that boat, and I'm not going with you. Because I have something in store for you as you get out into the middle of that, wa- that water that you're going to learn from. God, sometimes, I hate to say this, he puts us into these boats where there's a hardship that's coming, where those clouds are growing, where the wind is blowing. The other word that is key to this passage is this. Seeing them, watching them, straining at the oars, and as they strained at those oars, they tried to oar their way across this sea and for 12 hours made no progress. This word strain is an interesting word. Mark chose this word as he wrote and told us about this incident. The word straining means in the Greek to test by rubbing a touchstone. The noun form of strain is actually the Greek word for touchstone. It means to cause distress. Here's a little kit that is a touchstone. This is a touchstone right here, as you may well know. Well, what people will do who are into gold and precious uh, uh, gems, they will take a piece of gold and they will wipe this touchstone with that piece of gold because they want to determine how pure it is, how valuable it is. And each piece of gold will leave a different colored mark. And they will measure the worth of that gold by the mark that is left on the touchstone. Sometimes they'll take the gold and they'll wipe this touchstone with that gold and then they'll take uh, some acid and pour the acid on that particular gold mark that's on the touchstone. And whatever color then comes out of that gold that is on that touchstone by the acid reveals the value of that gold. It could be 24 carat, it could be good 12 carat. It'll reveal whether it's pure and valuable or whether it's just junk. Mark uses that term that has a lot of color to it. And he says, as the men are straining at the oars, it is as if God has put their hearts, marking it on a touchstone, to test them, to find out the value of their faith in me, like gold. Is their heart of faith 24 karat, or is it something much less? So Jesus made them get into the boat without him so that he could put their heart's mark on a touchstone of faith to measure how much they believe he is a God who will care for them. Now God does that for us. God puts us in those places. He allows these situations that I just listed earlier so that it becomes a touchstone where we strain and we don't like it. We wish God wouldn't do it. But in the bigger picture, God does these things for a higher purpose that we may not understand. We may not see it for a while. For example, going to the Old Testament, there's a king, Manasseh. 
He's a Jewish child. He's part of the kingdoms of Israel. Manasseh was an evil king. He didn't walk with the Lord at all. In fact, he was very disobedient. The Second Chronicles tells us. Notice what God does. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh, his king, and his people, his Jewish people. They are his chosen ones. They are the chosen ones. And he says, But they paid no attention. They ignored him. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, these enemies, against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. No one wants to have that happen to themselves, but that's what God did. God did that. Why? When he was in distress, when he was straining, when God put his heart on a touchstone, when he was in distress, then he entreated the Lord as God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to God, he was moved by his entreaty, God was, and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see, what God does sometimes, and candidly, I hate to say this, but it is true in my life and maybe yours, I sometimes sin against God. I am in rebellion against him. My, my attitude, my heart may not be where it needs to be. I may not be treating my wife the way I should be. There may be something that's going awry and my attitude is just sour. There may be jealousy or envy. And God comes along and like Manasseh, he hasn't put me in hooks and chains and stolen me away to another country. But he will come and he will test me. He will discipline me. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves. And sometimes I am in distress Sometimes I am straining against the wind because sometimes my heart is in rebellion against God and I'm not paying any attention to him. And God says, I will allow this thing to come into your life so that you will turn back and that you, like Manasseh, will know that I am the Lord your God. And that's reality. And there's some of us who go through hardships as a byproduct of sinful rebellion. And God says, but I want you back. I want you back. Sometimes we are victims of the sins of others. This last week I was touched. I watched the service in Long Beach of Captain Dave Rosa, who a week earlier had rushed into a burning building to rescue these elderly people, only to be gunned down, killed. A husband father of two boys, 17-year career at the Long Beach Fire Department. I think, God, this is a man who loves you. Dave was part of a church in South County, San Juan Capistrano. He was part of a Bible study. And in that Bible study, one of his friends remarked about the killing of his dear friend, Captain Rosa. He said this, these things happen because we live in a fallen and a broken world. Sometimes we do, we do sin to people. Sometimes others do sin to us. Sometimes sin happens accidentally. David got in the middle of sin accidentally. I think I would look at that and say David was the victim of another person's sin. Those of us who follow Jesus, and I'm not saying anything we don't already know, we're not exempt from the victimhood of the sinfulness of others' behaviors. 
But God is still working. We're still in this boat. We're still straining to move forward. We don't want to just remain there. And so two observations about these men in the boat and for us is that we'll feel awfully much alone at times. Jesus over there on the mountain watching. But Jesus, why aren't you here in the boat with us? And we will have this sense of straining to move through this experience. And it will be hard. It will be painful. As I had a woman come up to me after first hour with tears in her eyes. And she's going through a straining experience. Now how hard it still remains. And I want to assure us that it's not because of my sin. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that Christ wants to now use that to redeem that, like Manasseh, if we're the ones who are at fault to bring us back. That's what God does. That's how he ministers. And so we learn from this that he will put us in those situations, but we also learn from this passage that Jesus will be watching. He will be waiting. He will be working. He wants to be with us. Remember, he is standing on the side of the mountain watching this whole play out, watching his men in the darkness of night, straining at their oars, going through the wind, but not making any headway. Again, the passage continues on. At about the fourth watch, the fourth watch would be somewhere between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock a.m. And so here they are, and they left at sunset. So we're looking at 12 hours of no progress. It's frustrating when these things come, and we want to make progress. We want to see results. We want to see the marriage improve. We want to see the kids grow up well. We want to see the cancer conquered. We want to see the promotion to the job. We want to get into the school of our choice. We want to make progress, but we strain because there's something opposing us. And it says that the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and he tended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and he cried out. It's fascinating here. This miracle of walking on the water by Jesus, showing his full deity, that he is God over everything. And the men's response? Fear. But I'm intrigued by this phrase. When you read it real fast, first time I read this, he says he intended to pass by them. I went, wait a second, Jesus. You're going to walk on the water and impress them with that? Say, See you guys, hope you make it to the other side. What kind of a God is that? Well, that seems rather calloused. And frankly, sometimes I feel like Jesus is just passing me by. As I sort of languish in a boat where I'm not making any progress about a situation, I'm wondering, Jesus, are you just walking by me and just say, hey, Dave, good luck with that. See you later. No, that's not what Jesus does. When you look at this word to pass by, you realize it means something deeper than that. Because it's a term that's used in the Old Testament. And these are Old Testament people, essentially. In the Old Testament, it's used in Exodus 34, 5, and 6. The Lord descended, this is to Moses on the Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments. The Lord descended in the cloud, which reveals his glory, his presence, and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in the front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And what God is saying to Moses, I'm not just walking by. I'm not just sort of walking by. Hey, Moses, how's it going up Mount Sinai? See you later. 
He's coming to pass beside him. He's coming to reveal his glory to him. He's coming to be present with him in a miraculous way that never would have been seen before by Moses there or perhaps by these men in the boat. It's to pass beside with the glory of God to be revealed to these men in ways they've never seen Jesus before. That's what Jesus is doing. He's not idling, passing by. He's intentionally coming to be present with them and his glory to be revealed to them. Walking on water, quieting the wind, being present in the boat. That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to meet us in those moments to reveal himself to us. And the third thing I observe about this passage is that Jesus then will offer words for courage and he will be present to help us. We don't always think we're hearing from him. Here's the passage again, continuing on the story. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and he said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got in the boat with them. The wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. The word astonished there in the Greek means to literally be out of your mind. Here's Jesus coming along to reveal his presence to them. And they think he's a ghost. They cower in fear. They want nothing to do with him. And then he climbs in the boat. I'm thankful that Jesus wasn't going to wait for them to believe in him before they got into the boat. It's nice to know that we don't have enough faith before Jesus gets into the boat. Jesus gets into the boat when we have fear, and then the faith comes. Jesus takes the first step. And one of the things that strikes me about this is that we, like the men here, when we're in those situations, we are vulnerable to this emotional fear that is irrational and undermines our faith. Let me give a trite illustration, 4th of July. Fireworks going off like we're in a war zone, right? Just unbelievable. I think it's louder every year. Well, our little dog, we have a little Scottish Terrier. She's about 11 years old, and she is the sweetest little thing. And we walk in the door when we come home, and she just thinks we are the greatest people in the world. She loves us unconditionally. No matter if anybody else doesn't love us unconditionally, we always know that Izzy will love us unconditionally. So it makes us feel good. It's all about us. And so Izzy hates to hear fireworks. Sometimes we hear the Disneyland fireworks and it scares her. And I'm going to be suing them for emotional damage to my dog. But on the 4th of July, it was an amazing amount of fireworks. And she just cowered in fear. Every, every explosion, every M80 and whatever they were blowing up was killing her emotionally. She was so scared. And she ran into one of our rooms and ran underneath the bed and just cowered there. So after a while, I went into the bedroom and I lifted up the cover that carries the side of the bed and there she was, just sort of shaking. And I felt so badly for her. So I petted her and said, Izzy, it's okay. It's okay, that not, that's not going to hurt you. And her little tail would go like this. And so I scratched it on her tummy. Oh, she loves that. Oh, it feels so good. Thank you. I could, I could read her mind. And so she was just so calm at that point. I said, come on out. We're outside watching. We could see some of the... Joy and I were in the spa, actually. And so there's some of the fireworks that were going off, and so we were watching all that. And, and then as soon as she came to the doorway, 
to go outside, another explosion went off, and she ran right back underneath the bed. And no matter how much I would tell her, you know, this is the key. We've had Izzy for 11 years. We've loved her. We've fed her. We groomed her. We've picked up after her in the backyard. We've done everything for her. And we've never charged her any rent. And as soon as I go to her and say, Izzy, you know how much we love you. And no matter what I would say, it's fine. They can't hurt you. She cowered in fear and just wanted to hide. I thought, what an immature faith she has. Yet I've walked with God for now, I think, 52 years. I'm 67, so I'm not trying to play games with numbers. Thank you. So for 52 years, I've walked with God. And like Jesus to the disciples, God would say to me like I said to Izzy, and I can be, I can be just like Izzy to God. Oh God, I don't like this situation, these circumstances. These things bother me. I have fear. I'm concerned. I'm worried. And Jesus would say, do you remember what I told the guys in the boat? Take courage. It is I. I am, I am that I am. It's sort of a term for Yahweh. Do not be afraid. Seven times God said, Jesus said in the Gospels, seven times he said, take courage. And yet I can be like Izzy, cowering in fear, irrationally, not believing that, well, he really means it for me now. He meant it for them 2,000 years ago so that I could learn that he means it for me today. And I don't want to be like my dog, cowering in fear when I should be growing in faith. Because fear, fear comes when it seems that Jesus has left me alone. They thought they were alone, but he was, he was watching them the whole time. Fear comes when I strain alone in my own strength, when I, I will do it on my own. I, I don't need to call upon God. Never did they pray and ask Jesus to come and help them. Fear may distort my view of Jesus. Jesus arrives on the walking on the water. They think it's a ghost and they're terrified. It will distort how, how I see Jesus. Fear can harden my heart towards Jesus, as we'll see in verse 52. But faith, faith grows as I listen and learn from the words of Jesus. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Faith expects Jesus to be present and help me. Faith discovers a new reality of the presence of Jesus as one who does care for me. Faith opens my eyes to see Jesus in a new light as he passes by like Moses on Mount Sinai. Let me give you an illustration of this. Kate Bowler I read about her two months ago, just as I was going on sabbatical. I read an interesting blog that she wrote and is entitled, God Came to Me in My Cancer. I love what she wrote. The whole thing is just amazing. Google Katie Bauer and look her up and read about her. She's an amazing woman, Christian woman, loves the Lord, teaches at Duke University. As she was going through life with kids, she came down with cancer and it hit her hard. She was in the hospital struggling to get through each day. But she wrote about that experience, and I just want to read a couple of things that she said at the end of her blog. At a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, like the disciples felt in the boat, I was not reduced to ashes. I felt like I was floating, floating on the love and the prayers of all those who were hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. 
They came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hand in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others. A world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they had made. Where God begins to alter the course of life. And she says this, that feeling of the presence of Christ to the beloved and prayers of brothers and sisters of faith, that feeling stayed with me for months. I started to panic at the prospect of losing it. When the feelings recede like the tides, friends said, they will leave an imprint. I would somehow be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. When you and I go through a boat in a wind and we strain and Jesus passes by, there is a mark of his presence and a reality of his life that is unlike anything else. It's a reality of saying, I am thankful for the strain of the wind. I am thankful for the cancer that I have. I'm thankful for the disappointments of life because in some cases, it opens my eyes to the reality of Christ and his presence and his power I would never have seen otherwise. That's hard to say, but I know it's true for so many as it was for Kate Bowler. And here's the challenge. We need to keep looking at those things. We need to remember and reflect on Jesus' past help and his present work for you. And here's the warning. This is what Mark concludes this story. This beautiful story of Jesus' ministry to these people. And the last thing that Mark writes about in the story is this sort of negative verse. For they had not gained any insight from the incident. The, the loaves and the fishes, the miracle of Christ that had just immediately had preceded this event. When he immediately made them get in the boat, they had forgotten all about this miracle of the loaves. And what happens but their heart was hardened. What happens is that we go through straining against this wind that we resent God and our hearts become hardened as we forget all that he has done. You know, even for us in some much smaller way, you know, transitioning after 22 years of being senior pastor here to now being one of the guys and not being in charge, it's not always easy. And you sort of, I wonder Lord, what, you know, am I, is it fit? Am I still a good fit here? Is this, what's going to happen? Or I'm suddenly I'm more vulnerable to who knows what, and I'm not sure is this going to work out? Is this the way it should be? Is this right? Should we change churches? I mean, all these things kind of go through your mind. You're like, oh, God, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure how it's going to work. It's brand new for me. I hope it works out. Jesus comes his day. I've taken care of you for 67 years. You think I'm going to give up on you now? And the same thing all of us. That when we commit to Christ, he commits to us. And even when I cower in fear in a boat in the wind, he doesn't wait for me to believe in him. He gets in the boat with me. And then he says, okay, Dave, let's make this right. He wants to come and meet with us. He wants to pass by us. He wants to be present with us. He wants to reassure us of his words. 
Never forget it. So I want to take a moment right now to encourage us to do what I think we should do. On the back side of the outline, take a couple of moments to reflect. Because it's easy for my heart and maybe your heart to get hardened against God when on any given day something doesn't go the way I want it to go. Write down a time or a situation when life was out of control or a sudden disaster or a disappointment, hurt. But then Jesus intervened to get you through it. What was that? See, the problem of the disciples, their hearts were hardened because they didn't remember the miracle that Jesus had just performed. And he'd walked on the water before. They forgot. I think one of the things we need to constantly remember are the things that God has done that then reassures me that he will still do, that he can be present in the storm of my situation. So as the music plays, just a couple of moments, just to begin the journey, would you reflect? What has God done that, that can continue to keep your heart open and trusting, not fearful, but faithful? I encourage you to continue to consider those things. And there's verses below there. I love this verse, Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God needs to constantly drill that into my brain. Because I will forget that he said that. I will forget that he said it to me, said it to you. So I pray we walk by that faith, not out of fear for whatever God is doing that surrounds us. We're going to worship now, and we have the prayer points on either side. If you'd like someone to pray with you, like Kate Bauer, it was the presence of prayerful people supporting her that helped her experience literally the body of Christ. If you'd like someone pray with you, we would love to pray with you. We have the communion stations, the bread, the cup, symbolizes the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and that reality that he is with me. These symbolize his presence with us. You can take those and receive those as a, as a time to sort of re-impress that truth of Christ present with us. So let's worship together and responding in those ways.